Hi, Rarecast listeners. This is Danny Levine. Rarecast will be on a hiatus until early January. In the meantime, we're bringing some of our favorite past episodes you may have missed. This week, we replay an April 2015 interview with David Pierce, president of Sanford Research, director of Sanford Children's Health Research Center, and developer of the CORDS Registry. Even though we're on a break, we'd still love to hear from you and get your thoughts on Rarecast. Pop me a note at Danny at LevineMediaGroup.com. I'm Daniel Levine, and this is Rarecast. David Pierce created the Coordination of Rare Diseases at Sanford, or CORDS Registry, as a national resource that could help accelerate research into rare diseases. We spoke to Pierce, president of Sanford Research, director of Sanford Children's Health Research Center, and the Global Genes 2012 Champions of Hope honoree for research and science, about his own research into the neurodegenerative disorder Batten disease, how that led to the development of cords, and the role patient registries can play in accelerating rare disease research and the development of new therapies. David, thanks for joining us. I'm very glad to, to be speaking with you. We're going to talk about CORDS, a, a national registry that you established to accelerate research into rare diseases. But I'd like to start with your own work in rare disease. You are one of the world's leading researchers of Batten disease, a, a rare neurodegenerative disorder. Can you explain what Batten disease actually is? Yeah, so, so Batten disease is, is a group of diseases that um, have a defect in the cell that really is, you know, affects what we call the garbage disposal in the cell, so an organelle called the lysosome, which basically is involved in recycling cellular components. You know, not everything lives forever, even in a cell. So there's a, a biochemical mechanism that turns, thing over, turns things over as we produce new components of our cells, uh, as we grow and divide, and as we function day to day. So, so Batten disease uh, has uh, a defect in this recycling process that really, you know, allows things to accumulate. So there's no recycling going on in the cell itself. So things just accumulate and then gunk up the cell. Um, and subsequently, this results obviously in, in a defect in many processes and, and, and kills a number of cells. And the cells that are exquisitely sensitive to, to this defect are in the brain. Uh, brain cells, you know, uh, project uh, across the brain. When we think of a cell in the brain, it's just not like a, a set of cells just sitting next to each, to each next to each other. They actually, you know, have projections that uh, conduct the electricity onto other cells. So the fact that you're getting this accumulation um, within the cells it doesn't allow cells to communicate effectively, and then results in neurological disease. So more specifically, um, the most common form of Batten disease, and there's, there's a number, and I don't really have time to get into all forms, is the juvenile form of Batten disease. And this is called juvenile Batten disease because it's, you know, horrendously cruel. All of these diseases are, are, are just as cruel, but this one is cruel in the, in the context that a child will be perfectly normal up until the age of five. So just imagine a five-year-old right now running around and having fun. 
then what happens with that five-year-old is, is that they will gradually lose vision. Over a two-year period of time, uh, they will lose their vision and become legally blind, while uh, the families will, will go on, um, you know, really an exploration of trying to find out what is wrong with their child losing their vision. Diagnostically, we're much better today than we were 10 years ago, but there are many things that can cause vision loss. Um, so a child may just be diagnosed with some sort of uh, retinal disease. But unfortunately, what will happen after the age of seven is that they'll start to deteriorate more. Uh, they'll start to undergo neurological decline, so they'll have cognitive decline, motor decline. Um, they'll ultimately lose the ability to speak. They'll have seizures that become much, much harder to control. And ultimately, each child will end up in a vegetative state uh, and be wheelchair-bound and, and uh, pass away. So it's it's a horrible disease uh, for many reasons, obviously because of its outcome, but because of its late age of onset as well. So um, a number of years ago, um, when I was, you know, I'm still a geeky scientist, but when I was a geeky scientist studying something in a lab, I made um, a discovery just in the pathway which I thought would made an make an impact um, on understanding the basis of this disease. And coincidentally enough, my first child was born uh, around about that time, and I had no idea that there'd be something like this is devastating out there. So, um, you know, I think it was fate that decided, that although I have healthy children, that, you know, I made a discovery that made me realize I could make a contribution to this terrible disease. So um, we established a bunch of models, uh, and, you know, cutting a long story short, uh, we established, you know, many attributes that we believe are the true fundamental basis of the disease and the research led to the first ever clinical trial, which is still ongoing for the juvenile band disease. Well, you've been described as taking a, an interdisciplinary research approach. Can, can you explain what exactly that means and what's the benefit of, of such an approach? Yeah, so, well, here's, I would say the interdisciplinary approach was brought about by the fact that as soon as I realized that uh, this disease existed and that there were fundamental finding in the cell could help us understand it, I'm, I'm, I'm not going to let go until I can figure out how to treat this horrible disease. So the idea is is you not to leave any stone unturned. So the interdisciplinary nature is this, is, is that the basis of the disease is so it's an inherited genetic disorder, and there's a one gene called CLN3, which is defective uh, in the children with this disease, and they've inherited the defective copies from their pa parents. So the stone unturned approach was that many genes, we have 24,000 of them, uh, conserved all the way down to other organisms. We use mice models, we use zebrafish models, we use fly models and worm models. But CLN3 is actually conserved all the way down to yeast. So good old brewer's yeast or baker's yeast, um, which you know is studied in the labs for, for many pathways, has the same protein that's defective in batten disease. So the interdisciplinary approach was, is, okay, maybe if we can figure out what it does in a single-celled organism, a simple, single, simple organism like uh, yeast, that will help us understanding. That being said is, is that yeast, obviously, well, they don't have synapses and neurons and they don't communicate. So it doesn't matter if we figure out what it does in, in a single-celled organism. We need to understand the bigger picture in terms of what it does it do in, in a mammalian system. But bearing in mind, it probably does the same thing in cells, but obviously in a larger organism, um, the disease will manifest differently. So the interdisciplinary approach there is, is that we have uh, retained cell lines. Some of the, the, the families who've had children with uh, Batten disease are very generous, allowed us to draw blood. 
and we've established cell lines from uh, lymphocytes. We uh, have these cells that basically represent the biochemistry of the cells of, of, of band disease in, that we can study, as well as establishing mouse models as well. So mouse models are ubiquitously used uh, in biomedical research to understand the disease, and particularly for brain disease. So we've established a number of uh, mouse models, when, and the, one of the treatment studies that we did in those mice, which alleviated the disease, actually led to that clinical trial. That being said, the next step on the on on the interdisciplinary approach is this: if you have a visual right a visual right now, if you put your thumbnail in front of your face, that's the size of a mouse brain. That's not acceptable when it comes to actually trying to treat a child. Obviously, a mouse is not a truly appropriate model. It's just a convenient model because of cost. So what we've done is, and uh, we'll be having these animals very online, is, is we've actually uh, made a seal in three. Uh, pig model as well because we need to get a better understanding of what the disease is doing in a more higher functioning animal such as a pig. The other specific part of that is is that mice, if you think about them in terms of their senses, vision is not a really well-developed sense in mice. Uh, touch and hearing are much more uh, important to them. So uh, the, the pig model will help us understand the, the visual deficit in this disease much more. Well, you, you've also been described as being interested in integrating basic science with clinical practice through bench-to-bedside research. Can you explain how that shaped the work you do? Yeah, I mean, it's it shaped my work, which is, and it's that interdisciplinary approach. If we're going to try and cure a disease in a child where their brain is essentially falling apart, well, how do we do that? Well, we don't understand what the brain does in every normal individual right now, and the challenge is how do we actually figure out what is happening when it's, when it's not functioning correctly. So you have to understand basic mechanisms of cellular function. So how does the brain cells communicate to each other in the normal sense? So you do those studies. So everything we do with a bat and disease mouse, for example, we have to do in, in a normal control wild-type wild mouse so we can understand the basis of the biochemistry and the functioning there. Uh, and then so that the term bench to bedside means, well, literally, obviously, when you find something at the bench, then you can obviously translate that to a clinical trial or, or a treatment option uh, for a patient uh, with batten disease. So that's really the strategy that we've taken is in and we've really, you know, many in many times taken a, an approach that we may have discovered this in the batten disease mouse, but that's not something that either underlies the disease or is not something that we can actually target to take to the, what we call the translational bed to bed bench-to-bedside approach. Well, when did the idea come for a, a national rare disease registry, and was it related to your experience you had in your own work? Yeah, I'm so glad you asked that question. I mean, so early on when I first started working on band disease, um, someone said to me, Dave, it's all very well that, you know, you, you want to make a clear impact in this disease and, and treat this disease, but you're not a physician. You need to figure out how this disease progresses in children. So um, cutting a long story short, I introduced myself to the chief of pediatric neurology uh, at the University of Rochester, where I was at the time, Jonathan Mink, <clears throat> and said, uh, you know, I work on band disease. And he said, no, I've heard you were coming to see me. I've heard all about you. And I said, yep, I work on band disease and I'm going to come up with a treatment. Uh, I need you to come up with a, a natural history study or rating scale to understand the disease because the children are so variable in the progression of the disease. I mean, when I talked a little bit about 
the loss of vision and the loss of cognitive function and um, loss of motor function. I mean, every child is very unique and, and progresses at a very slightly different rate of progression and because every child is different when it comes to just normal development. So he said, you know, that's a great idea, but I've only ever seen one child with Batten disease before because, you know, it's quite rare. And so I said, well, that's fine. There's a family organization called the Batten Disease Support and Research Association. Um, I work with them very closely. They have a family conference uh, every year. Um, I can get you to become the world's expert if you come and visit that conference. It's in eight weeks' time uh, if you come in and examine all the children. So... They put together, him and two other physicians put together a piece of paper that really described what they read about um, the, the progression and understanding of the disease so they could examine as pediatric neurologists the disease um, to get a baseline on these children with the idea that we would follow them for a number of years to get a good understanding of the progression of the disease. And it was absolutely fascinating. So I went up to the hotel room at the meeting after day one and they said, we've ripped it all up. We're going to start from scratch. Uh, this disease, you know, is truly going to be hard for us to understand. Uh, but they persisted with this and for several years, and they still do it now. They go to the meetings, and we follow these children so we can truly get a baseline and understand the progression of this very rare disease in these children. And it's important because if you're going to follow a child, or if you're going to treat a child, first do no harm. So if you're going to put an intervention in a child, you really want to know as soon as possible if you're making an impact. And when it came to putting the clinical trial together, obviously, I know my basic science and how I treated the mouse, that data was very valid in understanding it. But part of that clinical trial was, well, how are you going to follow the children? So they had already developed what they call the band disease uh, rating scale to follow the progression. And there's a number of metrics that are very consistent in the children. You or I as non-physicians would probably not be able to determine those, but there were a number of determinants that clearly happen as milestones in the disease. And those milestones can be used to see whether you've had a positive intervention on the disease. So that was the influence there. And that would never have happened if we hadn't established a registry for all of the children in the first place. You can't put a natural history study together if you don't actually have the names and addresses and the contact information for the families. So when I was recruited to Sanford, this was the utopian aim. If, I could, if I've truly made a difference in Batten disease with a clinical trial and we still need to do more in that disease, then I want to make a, an impact on other rare diseases, but I don't know which ones to pick. So I'm going to pick them all and not use the basis of what we've done in the past is, is that if we can build a registry for every rare disease that occurs, then that will give other individuals the ability to put a rating scale for these rare diseases together, which will then expedite clinical trials. So can you describe the registry for me, Cords? Tell me what, what information includes, how does it work? Yeah, I mean, it, it, to start with, in many respects, and we've become much more customized with it as it's evolved, it's really just a, a registration of um, who you are, what disease you've been diagnosed with, and how that diagnosis had come to uh, be. What we've done now is, is that as you're, as you're aware, many foundations and family organizations uh, get together, just like the Batten disease families. They get together each year and have been encouraged by numbers of people to put together registries so investigators, whether they be researchers or clinical investigators, can then access the patients for studies and clinical trials. So what we've done is we've partnered with a number of organizations 
um, a number of family organizations, and we basically host their registry. And many of those have now gone to the next level by putting in much more data in terms of what you know, what's the phenotype in terms of the disease, what's the progression of the disease. Um, some of the variabilities, a lot of the clinical profiles. So we've built this capacity so it will always speak to our electronic medical record because the electronic medical record is the way the future of all healthcare is, is all of our data needs to be linked to that electronic medical record. So then the, the way will be that we can actually then integrate someone's um, depending on when they develop the actual disease themselves, we can integrate all of the information, all of their healthcare information ultimately will go to that registry. Many patients... Many patients with the rare disease don't have a diagnosis. Do, do they make it into cords? And if so, is there a genetic or symptomatic or patient histories that might help identify them to a researcher looking for a specific patient? That's a, that's a great question. So we do, you're right, many family, many individuals do not have a definitive diagnosis. So they, we do have a number of people who are registered into the registry. And I think that's one of the things that will potentially help with diagnosis because you know, not every physician can be familiar with every different disease and condition. So there is a possibility for researchers to go in there and potentially, you know, map individuals that have similar diseases that have not been diagnosed. I think the other tangential piece of that, which is very important, is is that many rare diseases will present with similar symptoms. So if you think about many many diseases are just treated symptomatically. They're not actually getting to the core function of the actual disease itself. So I can think of probably 200 different disorders that have seizures, for example. So if, uh, you know, diseases that have seizures and Batten disease is one of those, we know for a fact, based on my research, that the, the underlying cause of the seizures um, is due to a, a receptor system where there is not a specific anticonvulsant that can be prescribed to target that receptor system right now. There's many that are under development, but the point being is is that that same drug that could be used to treat the seizures in Batten disease could treat the seizures in other diseases as well because that's not the underlying basis of the cell death in, in of the disease, but it's what's causing one of the very, very devastating symptoms of the disease and that seizures. Who has so access look, to cords and what's the range of ways it's being used? I'm sorry? I say, who has access to cords and what's the range of ways it's being used? So anybody can sign up. You know, it's it's web-based. Uh, any organization, um, if they want a customized natural history or database put together, uh, we work with them. And obviously, um, one of the big questions that comes up is who owns the data? Well, we co-own the data. Obviously, it belongs to the patients or the organizations, um, as well as Sanford has access to it. If specific organizations want researchers or people to access that information, they have the ability to ask us to open up the access for that. But we won't do that unless uh, that group or, or, or people really want to do, you know, have, what, wish that person to have access to it. It's all, of course, in a de-identified manner anyway. Um, but, uh, you know, we, we just I just see us as the facilitator and the host of this information. But why does CORDS matter? How has it changed the rare disease landscape? Well, I think, I think that's still in progress. I don't believe we've changed the landscape. I think we've made an impact on the landscape. I think uh, the concept of understanding the importance of a registry is still evolving. Um, I think that many groups do have registries, and it's, it's a huge deal to do it. So I think that uh, people are gravitating to cords now because they understand that this is something that comes from the heart. 
we're doing this for all of the right reasons because we want to make an impact on registries being built so there can be more clinical trials. So obviously we resource this entirely ourselves and I think the main impact it has right now is, is it provides hope. Everybody who has a rare disease or a child with a rare disease wants to know what's being done about it. And we're making a significant, you know, push to be able to put into the physicians who know these diseases better, but to put into their hands the tools where they could recruit the patients for the clinical trials that are being developed. David Pierce, president of Sanford Research, director of Sanford Research Children's Health Research Center and the Global Genes 2012 champion of Hope Honoree for research and science. David, thanks so much for your time today. It was a pleasure. Thank you. Thanks for listening. For more information about rare disease and to connect to the rare disease community, go to globalgenes.org. To keep up on the latest news and trends affecting the rare disease community, be sure to visit raredaily.org. You can subscribe to the Rarecast RSS feed through raredaily.org or through SoundCloud, iTunes, Stitcher, or your preferred podcast manager. The Rarecast is produced for Global Genes by the Levine Media Group. You can also find our podcast, The Bio Report, on these popular podcast sites. Our theme music is composed by Jonah Levine and performed by the Jonah Levine Collective. We'd love to hear from you. Drop us a note at danny at levinemediagroup.com.